Welcome to the Awe and Wonder podcast. This series is about cultural responsiveness, and we're very excited for our guest today, who we'll introduce in just a minute. My name is Sarah Kinsella. And I'm Brenda Del Monte. And we're joined by Ronaldo Fowler. Hi, Ronaldo. Thanks for joining Hi, us today. Thank you. Brenda, how how do you know Ronaldo? Um, you're the one who got Ronaldo on our podcast today, which we're really excited about. You want to give us a little background about Yes. So I'm in Arizona and we have a conference that Arizona's um ASTAP or Arizona Technology Access Program puts on with, oh, I think there's a couple other acronyms that are probably really important that I don't remember. But anyways, um, this summer we were at a a mutual conference together and I was there representing the nonprofit that works with kids with significant physical disabilities. And I had the pleasure of meeting Ronaldo and we got to talking about um, the grave topic of actually Ronaldo, I don't remember. Somehow we quickly went to CPS where it was like mm-hmm. there are reported the people with disabilities are highly are reported pretty highly to CPS, partly because people don't understand disability. And then people uh, that are African-American also get reported for a CPS at a higher rate. And then the people that are African-American with disability, it was like off the chart. And so we were talking about early intervention and how, or the home-based services and how, what, a, how off-putting that is. And then the recently, I think there was some research around African-American boys, I think age seven or something with disabilities were coming up um, really low on their skill sets. And it was partly because they'd missed out on some intervention prior to coming to school. And some of that was because the comfort level in that culture was was not at the they're they're not trusting that that they they can do early intervention services without being scrutinized to a point where they don't feel they don't just don't feel like it's safe and so how do we bridge the gap between um what you know the, the disability and and the, the services that that those people need and the comfort level of the population that needs them and so it was a fascinating conversation um he rattled off all so many statistics it was it was amazing. And I hope you have some of those at the tip of your tongue today too, because it was just like, and I, that's what pretty much sparked this whole series for us is I was like, you know what? I feel like we are walking around like we don't think this is, exists. We are walking around thinking we don't see color or we were walking around thinking that um, at all people with disability are equally discriminated against, which to some extent, all people with disability do experience um, um some kind of um, inequitability pieces for sure, but then then there's above and beyond that as well. So your work was just uh, is interesting. the The reach of your work in your conferences are, is is amazing, and I can't wait to hear more about all of that. So um, why don't you start by just telling us about your role and the community you serve? Okay. Well, thank you, Brenda, and thank you, Sarah. Um, um, my name is Ronaldo Fowler. I work for the Arizona Center for Disability Law, which will soon be Disability Rights Arizona. So Disability Rights Arizona is part of a national protection and advocacy system in the United States. So every state and territory have a protection and advocacy. So if you're in California, Disability Rights California, Disability Rights um, New York. So we're part of the Disability Rights family. And so I've been at this um, law firm for four decades. Okay, so I've been in the disability field for more than four decades. Um, I started working at this law firm right after I graduated from Arizona State University. 
And so um, I've been here and, and my original work was working in the area of special education. I've done that for many years. That's always close to my heart. And when I did a lot of work around special education, a lot of the students I work with, they were students with um, more challenging behaviors, a lot of kids on the autism spectrum, um, kids with emotional disabilities, and a lot of those kids were kids of color. And I really started seeing early on that a lot of these kids of color were being disciplined harshly. Um, a lot of them were being removed out of the education setting, placed in more restrictive setting, a lot of missed learning opportunities for these particular kids. So it's kind of a domino effect uh, on these young kids. And so I started seeing a lot of that um, disparities in terms of, of discipline of kids of color. And also I saw it in terms of kids with low income. So you had kids from low wealth communities. You start seeing those numbers too for those kids. And so I, I would see these things uh, going on. And so I did a lot of work around special education, and uh, really start focusing on just trying to tamper down some of the discipline stuff um, here at our office. We really identified those issues. We start trying to address this issue at the state level and things of that nature. And, and you get into those complexities where people will use statistics to show that, well, we don't have disparity. Our statistics don't show us. And as you know, you can get a tool to give you any answer that you want to have, okay, and how you interpret that data. And so those are some of the things that that I saw um, around, um, especially African-American communities and communities of color. And so over the years um, since I've been here, um, really, we we focus a lot at this law firm to make sure we address the needs of the underserved community. Um, you know, Arizona has a large Native community. So in the past, prior to COVID-19, we were out in various nations where Arizona is a border community with Mexico. So we have those border communities. We have large native populations. So we try to stay on, on top of things in terms of organizations. And so um, one of the things I really started noticing a great deal was when I would go to different events, I might be the speaker, it might be a statewide, county, municipal event, uh, early intervention event, different conferences, I would not see a lot of African-Americans uh, at those events. I just would not see them, um, especially if they were making policy, if there was a state agency or some agency making policy, county level, city level, you know, around disabilities. I would not see African-American families. So you have people developing policies without any input, really, from, from a community uh, mm -hmm. that they probably didn't have an understanding of the community. And as we know, I know people think it's, a, you know, this whole concept of diversity, different communities, um, no matter where, if you live in the Appalachian Mountains, if you live in Oklahoma, Oregon, Seattle, California, we all have our little micro cultures, how we do things, right? right. And, and that's the strength of America, not, not our weakness. And so you, you, you kind of have an understanding how to, how to serve those communities, have a basic understanding of those communities. And so I would see... Um, not very, very many African-Americans there, families, young moms, especially around early intervention, increase in autism. And so, so those are some of the things that, that I saw. And so um, one of the things um, that I thought was important is to start addressing these issues out in the community and, and you know, trying to get some of these folks to, you know, take a look and try to make some changes to the community, address the needs of the community. And, and you know, things move slowly. So what could I do um, to do to try to improve this situation? Um, because it's crucial for kids with autism, um, get early intervention, or most kids with speech and language deficits or uh, other mm -hmm. deficits. 
get them early when you have those learning learning stages. And yes. if you don't, then you got behaviors coming into the school system, right? Then right. you're interfering with learning. And it's just more and more strikes against these kids. And so we're not just talking about um, over-identification. We're talking about over-identification and underserved. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of things going on. So kids are over-identified, but they're also under over um, underserved when they're identified. So there's many different factors. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, economics play a part in advocacy. A lot of the families who are middle income, upper income, you know, have better resources, better education, have understand this system that was designed. Mm -hmm. um, they have time to take off for IEP. I mean, a lot of low income, low income families, jobs don't really give them opportunity to take off and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So a friend of mine, we were sitting down and having lunch. Back up a little bit. Back in 2002, um, I was able to um, get some additional funds from um, Jean Fairfax, who was a philanthropist who passed away in the Phoenix area. She did a lot around student work, equity around education. So we, she um, funded one of our lawsuits and we had some additional resources available. And so I approached her, wrote her a letter and say, hey, can I get, use this money to try to get something together around African-Americans with disabilities? And so that happened in 2002. And we had a really successful event at South Mountain Community College, which is a pillar of the community in South Phoenix. We had a great turnout. It was on a Saturday. I was able to get free food for everybody. And some of the students who were going to college that day dropped over and had a free meal. And <laughs> but they like that. So, you know, they dropped by and they were a little afraid. I said, no, the food's the food mm -hmm. guys. And as long as you come by and listen a little bit. And they came out and they listened. So it was a very successful event. Pushing 10 years later, I was sitting down, 10 years later, sitting down with a friend of mine who's an African-American gentleman who has a disability. We had to start this conversation about, hey, David, we're seeing the same thing. He said, well, let's do something about it. So David works for Ability360 at that time, which is an independent living center. David said, well, maybe I can get the rooms. And I said, well, David, I can get some speakers. We put the first conference together in three weeks. Wow. Like three weeks, okay? And um, this year will be our 13th year, so it's almost over 12 years ago. We hmm. sat down, and remember, that's 10 years exactly after the original one that I put together. We right. sat down and had, um, had lunch together, and we put the one together, and uh and we call it the first African-American conference on disability. We were pretty ambitious. We didn't have any money. We did, we had box <laughs> lunches and things of that nature. <laughs> but we had a good turnout. We had a good turnout. Um, so we start planning for the next conference. So over the last, I would say, I think for the first nine years of the conference, we've grown from like 100 people to like 350 prior, wow. to, prior to the COVID Um pandemic. And so those those nine years prior to COVID, we had many workshops. We had workshops on occupational therapy, discipline, election, mental health. And it, the most interesting thing, it's the most comprehensive conference that addresses African Americans with disabilities in the United States. Hmm. One of the, go ahead. I'm sorry, will you tell us the name of the conference again? So it's called the African American Conference on Disabilities. Okay. okay. So Thank there's you. some key things that with this conference It's designed for the African-American community and for those who serve the community and whoever wants to come to learn about, you know, eliminating barriers. It's a very diverse conference. Our speakers are diverse. Uh, it's a, a grassroots type of conference. Um, so 
prior to COVID-19, we had it at Desert Willow Conference Center, which is a nice conference center. And the full day conferences, we were charging like $95. So what we do is we get a bunch of sponsors, right? They help keep the cost down of the conference because it makes no sense when we're targeting families, we price them out, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so we made sure through our sponsorship that we made sure that we have the price down where families can come to it and we have scholarships. So we never turned the family away. That's great. That's all great. the time. Okay. So in our topics, as I mentioned, cover special ed, cover all types of topics, right? All types. And we had speakers from across the United States come. And here's the beautiful thing about it is um, our speakers at the conference, the way we're able to keep the cost down, it's all in-kind services. Uh -huh. Our speakers will travel from different places out the United States and do it in kind. Okay. Wow. Rarely have we paid. We helped, I think, a couple speakers travel with one of our partners. And remember, this is a partnership uh, of different organizations. I'll talk a little bit more about the DD Network, Arizona Commission for the Deaf or Part of Hearing, our Institute for Human Development, and Sonoran Center. Um, these are our USET program and our DD planning councils. So we have some great partners um, with us to make this happen for families. So mm -hmm. the nice thing about it, we have all these speakers who want to speak at the conference and waiving their fees because they know we're trying to do something to serve the community, right? Mm -hmm. So we were very successful. Then the pandemic hit. What did we do? Everything shut down. Mm -hmm. our, our, our conference was in February of I think was it February of 20, I think. And in March when they start shutting things down, right? Shutting mm -hmm. things down, right? We were like one of the last events at that conference center. So we had to decide when the next year come around, what do we do? How do we, did we do virtual? Remember that's the beginning of the new virtual, yeah. program, right? How do we do this? What do we do? And so, you know, we could cancel it and say, well, let's try it at the pandemic. So we decided to say, oh, let's just do it virtual. The beautiful thing about it is we had great tech support from um, our Institute for Human Development in Northern Arizona University, had a great tech team, great technology tech team, right? Good, good time to have a good tech team during oh, the pandemic. Oh, they were there already <laughs> in place. They had some Essential. And also the University of Arizona Sonoran Center, which is our, you said, we have two USETs in Arizona, University Centers for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. We have two in Arizona, okay? Northern Arizona University and uh, University of Arizona. They had great tech team. So we put our conference together and the first conference, um, we made it free. Um, we had to increase our Zoom capacity because you know that's when Zoom was new. We had to bump it up zoom capacity sure and our technology people knew uh decided to do facebook live right mm -hmm. so this is really this is this is kind of innovative stuff back then yeah right? you guys were on top of it yeah and at that time you know facebook wasn't really great accessible so we had to work on that we had that conference virtual conference and our we had um and this was ambitions. We had the conference during the entire month of February, right? Because we, when we had the conference before the pandemic, it was held one day in February in honor kind of Black History Month. But we started to do, I think, a couple workshops a week for the whole month of February. 
that was exhausting. And we had ASL, we had CART, we had everything, right? Um, we had over 11,000 people attend the conference. Wow, that's we amazing. Had, yes, 11,000 people attend the conference. We had um, 32 universities from across the United States, from Harvard to California schools, New York schools. Mm. And the beautiful thing about it was, I think we had 15 countries participate in the conference. Wow. I mean, that's incredible reach. How yeah. important this is to people. Yeah. And yeah, it's, not just because it's virtual. It's like, this is... It was crazy. It was it was crazy. It was we had New Zealand, we had Kenya, we had Ethiopia, we had Hong Kong, we had um, a school in Poland. I think there were an OT speech and language special school students were following us in Poland. We had Great. Germany. We had all these different countries following us. Um, Egypt. There's a, a somebody in Egypt who all the workshops. We did this presentation. Go ahead. Sarah. I'm sorry. I was just thinking you probably had more. I wonder if you had more families able to join because of the flexibility of allowed to be home or do you it think it was I, I think what happened was it was it was virtual. Everybody mm -hmm. remember it was virtual and we didn't have a charge to it because we just right. didn't. It was new. Right. So we, we didn't have a charge to it. So it was open. It was free. And mm -hmm. so um, what people found out was, wait a minute. And what's the most unique thing unique thing about the conference was because Arizona has such a small African American population, I was getting a lot of inquiries from large urban areas saying, Well, how do you guys do this? Um, this conference with such a small population. And and so I explained to to everyone, um, I think I have one of the best teams that I work with putting this conference together. I do good good portion of the work for the conference, but I have a great team of folks at um, our Institute for Human Development at Northern Arizona University. They also provide technology and they also present expertise. We'll talk more about that. So they have staff that presents uh, at the conference. Same thing with the University of Arizona Sonoran Center. Um, they're part of the planning committee and they also have staff at, at, at their um, school that participate at the on the conference and they help find the speakers for the conference. And so it's really a team process. And so we did that first one and it was just, you know, we had people all over the world. Um, Facebook, I got an email from some students in a college in California. They asked, could they attend, um, participate, you know, at the conference and, you know, do the remote thing while they look at the conference, have students study it. And so we did those things and we had some really innovative um, workshops that we had at the conference. Our opening session, we had 1,300 people attend the opening session. 1,300 people. Yeah. And we so, only had, go ahead. Um, it makes me wonder, what did you learn as other countries and other people, other states, other countries joined the conversation? Was, was there overarching similar um, issues in regardless of the country mm -hmm. and was there overarching similar issues regardless of the state kind of things like what what was what was consistent well let's let's talk about from from a state perspective from state to state so the conference now has a arizona national and international footprint okay 
Mm -hmm. So one of the things at Arizona level is a lot of the policymakers now um, come to the conference. They see the conference as an opportunity to learn, right? And it's for families to learn, right? And it's mm -hmm. also it's a design that that families talk directly with those policymakers, right? Then we have uh, other states that takes a look at Arizona. Oh, Arizona's doing it. We should be able to do it um, with our with our numbers. And so you see that. Mm -hmm. Then in an international platform. Um, last year, we had several countries that attend the conference. And so when we went, we're going back in person last year, I worked with four different African countries trying to get them past the visa process to get to um, the conference. But they found they found that information too late to get through the visa process. So the visa process for a lot of the African countries take months, 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 half a year versus our process is much quicker. Okay. So what I did was I got an email from several African countries saying, we can't make it this year, but can you find, when you find a location for next year, please let us know, especially the country of Malawi. The country of Malawi has just been um, pushing, 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 trying to get to the conference. So I've sent many letters, I think six letters of invitation to different countries, um, Ethiopia, Kenya, and a few African countries. Um, trying to get them here because they want to reproduce the conference in their country because now they're looking at disabilities, right? And looking at the platform that we're doing. Um, and Is so that because important. you're you're back to in-person now? Excuse me for interrupting. You're back. So last year, last year, so we did two years of virtual. Okay. So last year, what we did, so we did two years of virtual. Then what we decided to do was this year uh, in February, we went back we, we went back. However, after the COVID pandemic, everything has gone up significantly high. So I moved the in-person conference to June to give me more time to raise, raise money for June, right? But I didn't want to drop the virtual component because it's right. a successful tool. So what right. we do now, the conference is two parts. It's one conference, but it has two parts. In honor of Black History Month, we do a virtual pre-conference, which is coming up uh, February the 14th and 15th. We have that and we have, we'll do two workshops each day. So a total four, two on the 14th and two on the 15th. Then on June the 26th, we will have an in-person conference um, at the Hyatt Regency. Last, last, last one we just had, we had 450 people come to the conference and our Keynote speaker was our Secretary of State in Arizona, the Secretary of State, and also our governor, acting governor, when our governor's not here. Um, hmm. He talked about voting, um, but we had a great turnout um, at the conference in terms of families, professional policymakers. So, so we had we had the conference, and so for um, so we're back in person. So we did that in 2023. I am planning for 2024 now, as I mentioned to you, February the 14th, 2024, 14th, 15th, we have a virtual um, conference. We have those workshops already scheduled. Um, remember, I mentioned to you, we have a national, uh, international platform. Well, one of our speakers, one of our partners called the Arizona Center for African-American Resources has been with us for many years, one of our partners. Um, they do, Dr. Dawson does a lot of work around trauma. Great speaker does a lot of work around trauma. And Dr. Dawson has talked about trauma at the conference. The government of Kenya, she went over to Kenya um, last year and based on the work of the conference, now she's doing work about trauma and she did a presentation 
And so she's going to talk about at the um, opening session of the conference on the 14th, how her what she did in Kenya and the threats that we have in the United States and in Kenya. We have slavery yeah. here, they had colonization, colonization there, and there is still issues around colonization. So you have these some people don't even think about we had slavery here, they had colonization, which was almost slavery, right? So she's gonna talk about that at the opening session of the conference. Um, our second session of that day, we have two a day, one in the morning, because we want to make sure that when we do the presentation in the morning, that our viewers in Africa, it won't be too late. I think I it's like six right. or seven at night. So, right. so we're doing that. And so she's going to do it. But our afternoon session is going to be about, um, it's going to be about what are healthcare providers' responsibilities to provide um, accommodations in terms of healthcare providers, doctors and therapists. And we're also gonna be partnering with the Arizona Commission for the Deaf of Heart of Hearing. They're also gonna partner with that. And they're gonna talk about resources that to help you as a professional healthcare provider, how to comply and what are the resources that's needed to meet the needs, specifically the deaf and hard of hearing. So that's, yeah, that's, great. that's gonna be the first day. Second day, our friends at the Sonora Center, University of Arizona, is working with a group of African professionals in Africa. And they're gonna be presenting that morning, they're in Africa, they're gonna be presenting about the work that they're doing around disabilities in Africa. So a large panel from different countries in Africa, that's gonna be the opening session the second day. And the um, final session, fourth session, is gonna be done by my coworker, Amanda Glass, who's gonna look at discipline, because discipline's an issue around African-American kids still. And so, that that conference pre-conference is going to give you a little bit of taste so we as you can see we do international we do healthcare, mm -hmm. we do education so that's yeah gonna happen, that's going to happen on the 14th and 15th then um on june the 28th we're going to be at the um hyatt regency in downtown phoenix uh, with a full day of conferences um last year just to give you guys a heads up we had an actual vaccination clinic at the conference that was open to the public so even if you did not attend the conference, you could come up to the conference and they had a variety of vaccinations, um, not just COVID, they had many types of vaccinations. Uh, it was, I think Maricopa County Health Department was part of that process. And so we're looking to maybe do that again this year at the conference, maybe have um, um, vaccination clinic and maybe some health screening, maybe diabetes, mm -hmm. maybe prostate, maybe cancer. I spoke to someone this morning, maybe breast cancer. So, um, so many resources available. Yeah, so many resources available. And so what we try to do at the conference is provide a lot of different topics to cover, okay? Mm -hmm. um, this, year, um, this year we're working on, since I oversee our voting rights project at the law firm, that's one of my jobs too, is to work with all of our election officials from the Secretary of State's office to the governor's office to our recorders, making sure that the electoral process is accessible for people with disabilities. So we're hoping to have some really great folks that I'm trying to finalize to be our um, lunch speakers to talk about um, voting and, and what they're going to do to make sure voting is accessible for people with disabilities. And also when we think about people with disabilities, we're talking about our seniors. We're talking about our veterans, okay? Because a lot of times people forget a lot of our veterans are getting older. They have many service injuries. And so 
they need a support when they go vote. And our seniors who might be in nursing homes, what happens when the pandemic happens, okay? So we worked a lot with our, our, our recorders in Arizona to expand voting options for people who are in nursing homes through the special election boards. And so we do a lot of different things at the conference. It's, it's open to anyone. It's the most diverse conference in Arizona. You know, we, we, the people always ask, well, what's the difference? Uh, the, the only thing that we do a little bit different is we market a little bit more to the community, but it's open to anyone. Um, and one of the key things I think is important, the conference offers a safe space for African-Americans and for those who serve the community to have a good conversation without on equal ground. It's a safe place okay, mm. to have that brave conversation. And so one of the things that we do at the conference is we have those brave conversations. So often people don't feel uncomfortable. They don't want to have those brave conversations. So yeah. nothing ever gets done. Nothing ever gets done. So it's a place where you know, African-American families can say to policymakers, why don't you guys come to our community? Or, you know, I'm reluctant to have you come into my home because I think you'd be judging me all the time. And if I let you into my home, I say something wrong, are you going to call, uh, you know, Child Protective Services, you know, Department of Child Services on mm -hmm. me because mm -hmm. you don't like the way I do things, you know, mm -hmm. or they may not feel that you respect. It's like anything in general. Most parents a lot of times feel that a lot of professionals don't listen to them because they don't have mm -hmm. a PhD or have these credentials. And I always tell parents, yes, you have credentials. Your credentials is mom and dad. You're the mm -hmm. mom and dad, right? And so- Right. You know that things. there's two things you, you've said so far that were interesting. One, I mean, lots of things you've said were interesting, but two <laughs> things I want to dive further in. Sorry to say it that way. Mm -hmm. One is that uh, already a reoccurring theme in the conversations is um, parents of kids with disabilities um, not feeling like the quote experts are listening to them mm -hmm. or that if a, if a family um, feels like a little bit hesitant to ask questions because they don't want to look stupid mm -hmm. or they don't want to um, look aggressive, mm -hmm. which is an interesting word. I don't think that um, I feel like that's not something I've ever thought of as a parent, like, like that, if I ask a question, you might think I'm aggressive, but mm -hmm. it sounds like that those are some, those are some earned fears. Like they have been perceived as aggressive just by questioning an expert. And so mm -hmm. that's something that, um, I, that is interesting to hear about. And then having a, having a, the conference where you can ask those questions and they are, they are a, um, encouraged to ask questions without mm -hmm. judgment on, on being an aggressive person. And it, so then the other thing is, is you talking about um, discipline with the African-American community, that is that something that, that you see um, nationwide, worldwide? It's, it's, it's a conversation that we have internally in the community, and it's a conversation that's perceived in the community. Um, so those are, those are areas that, that, you know, there's traditional approach. And, you know, as generations move to the next generation, um, you talk about that. But I wanna, I'm going to say this to you. What I think is really interesting that the conference allowed to do. There was a, um, um, someone who was speaking, there was a professor was from one of our universities who was at the African-American conference, right? And he was in one of the sessions, a professor. And he actually stood up 
and says in this room, saying that he has African-American students in his classroom and they're quiet. And he would like for them to be much more engaged in the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And he says, is there any ideas or tips that points that you can give me that maybe I can get them more to participate? Mm -hmm. Well, an arrogant person would have said to him, well, you shouldn't know how to do it. You're the professor. Mm -hmm. That's what an arrogant and an ignorant person would have said, right? Mm -hmm. Arrogant and ignorant. Did you know him asking that question, the feedback that I got, he got more responses from the panel and from the audience. Just mm -hmm. give him some tidbits on how maybe he can engage him a little bit better. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's. What were they? What were the tidbits? Well, just, you know, just, I wasn't there. I got the second hand, but he gave me little tidbits. And that's, that was amazing. And the feedback I got is that he thanked everybody and he was going to take that information back. But I thought that was interesting that, remember we said moving from a safe space to a brave space? Because mm -hmm. he, as I said to you, some people in that room, if it wasn't the African-American or some other conference, or may, could it happen there? Is saying, well, you should know. You have the pick. You should know. You should know how to work with kids. You, mm -hmm. they, you know. But no, he asked that question, and when mm -hmm. he asked that question in a room full of African Americans, it was sincere, and it and was taken as sincere, and he was asking for help. Mm -hmm. right? He didn't know everything, but is there something that can make me be a better teacher? And so that's how that was perceived. That's great. Not his ignorance, but that's how it was perceived in the community. So. That's the thing that you that's really important. Yeah, that's um, great. That that you have. So I I think I don't, and I, I always like to say this. I don't speak on behalf of all African Americans, right? Sure. I just come in here and give you a little tidbit. Mm -hmm. of what we're trying to do to help professionals, um, you know, meet the needs of of our community, and if they meet the needs of our community, those things would, you know, apply to. Most other communities, we would hope it, right? right. We would right. hope. So, go ahead, Ronald, Ronaldo. Um, our, I think there's probably a lot of our listeners listening to you today that say, "Okay, this sounds like a good conference. I am really interested and excited." And um, and a lot of the listeners are therapists or um, mm -hmm. parents and teachers working with um, generally, you know, like birth to 21, but others too, but kind of in the school system. So what, what would you say are some guiding principles that would we, we'd need to consider when approaching a family with a culture different from our own? Like you said, you're not going to speak for all Black people, right? But mm -hmm. there are guiding principles like listening. And if somebody steps up and says, I have a question about this, that, you know, we're, we're, we're allowing that. It's 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 really. I mean, those 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 skills should be applied to all families. Number one, mm -hmm. right? So right. there's no specialty with 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 parents of color. Mm -hmm. uh, those should apply to all families, right? But but right. also understand families come with their own history, right? So so what happens so often? I see this is is they'll talk about the Latino community, Hispanic community, right, uh, in the United States. Well, if you are an Hispanic community where you've always been in the United States, you live in the foothills, you're making six figures, 
and you just or a family just arrived from Guatemala or Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. The United States mm -hmm. have a whole different look at the world, right? For sure, yeah. So right. Their needs are going to be different, right? There's nothing wrong with that, right? So we all need to just kind of understand that every family has their own history, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and their lived experience. And so a lot of times, um, I always tell people, you know, kind of listen, listen a little bit, just listen, listen. And, and I think one of the things that if you have, like, when you meet a new family, hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, my name is Brenda. I'm here to, as a team, us working as a team, right? I don't have all the answers. I would like for us to work. I'd like to get your input on what you think your baby needs. Where, where, where do you see your baby at, right? Get them, rather than you tell them what you're going to do. Right. Them a little bit, you know, this is things that may be trained in school, but ask them, what do you see? How do you see your baby doing? And and you you kind of work with them from that perspective, okay? Mm -hmm. What do you see? What do you think is most important, okay? With mm -hmm. your baby and what your baby needs, is there, you know, and so what are some of the things that you see you might be having some challenges that I can help you in and things of that nature. So it's just a matter of getting that family history, kind of finding out what they want before you move forward with the plan. Mm -hmm. um, some cultures, before you do business, right? Before you do business, you get to know people. Right. Mm -hmm. Some cultures, you sit down and you eat with people, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not saying you have to eat with people, but just kind right. of understand, um, you know, if there's common threads. Right. Um, and try to try to get those common threads. You know. Yeah, I think if we go in with an agenda, like a clinical agenda, you know, I'm here and I have this much time to give you this this information or assess your child on this skill set, or um, then we've missed, we've already missed the opportunity to mm -hmm. ask the key question that you just said, which is um, basically what what's your pain point? Like what's what's hard for you? Because mm -hmm. I'm actually here to serve you. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not actually here to complete a speech evaluation. I'm actually here to serve you. Mm -hmm. And, and um, in order to, in order to even understand in, in particular communication, right. And mm -hmm. um, I need to know how your family operates. Mm -hmm. I need to know how your family communicates in general, you know? <laughs> I mean, you're a good example. So you're doing a speech and language eval, right. And so you say, um, okay. Well, and you and you're working with the family, so you have mom, dad, grandma, right, grandpa, right. Well, you oh, we want to work on grandma. We want a great grandpa. Well, that family may not refer to that person as grandma. They may refer to him as what, big mama, right, <laughs> big mama, right. Okay. Yeah, in the family, it, you we laugh and but you know in the family, you know they don't say grandma, mm -hmm. yeah, or granddad. They may call him grandpa. So your right. therapist, your therapist might want to work on not saying grandfather. You might want to just say, say grandpa. You know, right. th those types of right. things with with, I mean, I just gave you an example. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of of trying to find those little nuggets that right. developing trust. It's about developing trust. See you as an ally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. An ally for the family. And things of that nature. And so those are just kind of some of my, I'm not, you know, um, 
uh, you know, expert on on culture competent, but these are some things based on my experience mm-hmm. that I see that's been real helpful at the conference. Yeah. That well, one of, all one about of the, a safe place. Go ahead. Yeah, one of the things <laughs> I do. Most of my services, by the way, are are provided in the home. I think I, you know, you and I talked mm-hmm. about this prior, but um, so first of all, recognizing that just being invited into someone's home is a privilege mm-hmm. and not a, not a right. You know, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a there's approaching that way. But one of the things I do when I'm setting up a communication device is I try to do the people page for exactly what you're saying, because mm-hmm. I want to know who are the people that, mm-hmm. that make this kid's world go round, right? Mm-hmm. And I have gotten used to saying, and what do you call grandma? Because it's Mima mm-hmm. and Papa and mm-hmm. Nini and Papa, all yeah. kinds mm-hmm. of names, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the number of people that actually call them, you know, grandmother is zero. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. um, but then when you get going with do you have a photo? Because we want to add their picture to mm-hmm. the communication device. Mm-hmm. Then they are. They do start talking about. Well, she, now she she actually lives here, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, this is a multi generation family living situation. Like you don't know that sitting in their living room the first time necessarily, mm-hmm. right? So one thing is in the AAC device is doing the people page first is 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 getting to know. And I think if you're a school based speech pathologist, you're thinking, how am I going to do that? I'm not in their home. I only see mm-hmm. these family and IEPs once a month, once a year. And you do have to go, hey, I want to reach out to this family now, and I want to get, I want your student, your child, to be able to talk about their people at school. And the only way to do that is to have those people in your device. And that opens up a conversation about who is important. And it, it makes it more mm-hmm. person-centered mm-hmm. than vocabulary-centered or data-centered or anything else, to that, for that matter. And it pretty much requires communication with the family. And so they feel needed in mm-hmm. the development of their child's communication device system because you don't know who all the people are and you don't have the photos and you do, you are an expert on your child. You are the one that has the mm-hmm. most comprehensive view of your child than, than me. I'm, I'm only looking at this small percentage of their communication skills or which is just a, a small piece of this body, right? This human. And you have known this human their whole life and you have usually, unless there's foster or other things going on, but, um, I think that that's a great example that that big mama thing where it's like oh yeah big mom and also you know triggered that memory of mine of of that that is such a um, great place to start and that's that's I'm here to serve you I'm here I'm gonna I know how to edit the device you that's scary for you but for right now I want to add your people and you 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 meet them halfway and that's really one of the most important things is is developing that relationship and because you know. Without trust and respect, the child won't really benefit from your services. You can go in and 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 do do, and they're like, "I'm glad she's gone," you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and the work that you're doing is not being carried out. Right. Uh, so you that means trust um, with the family. They see you as an ally. Um, they see you truly there. You're not there just for a check. Um, and so. Those are the things, um, but like I said, um, the African-American community is very broad, very broad. I'm just giving you some generalizations. Um, some things that I said apply to many African-Americans, some don't, mm-hmm. but you know, this is just give you a sense of, um, it's a very diverse community, um, urban and rural. Um, you know, the model in the urban core does not work 
with folks in rural communities. And, and oftentimes we see a lot of TV shows showing the gritty urban cities where half of, more than half of African-Americans live in rural America. And they have a whole different approach. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you're in uh, New York City, talking about a subway may mean something. But if you live in rural parts of Georgia and Mississippi, where families might be doing crop work or farming mm-hmm. work or, you know, smaller community work, they may have a much more uh, different approach. So I just want everybody to realize that is, you know, it's not just the urban core model. Um, it's, mm-hmm. I was born and raised in rural Arizona. Um, you know, I was I, I lived in Phoenix for most, well, my adult life, but I grew up in rural Arizona. And as an African-American, okay, I knew about horses, cattle, copper, and citrus, you know? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so people, people surprise yeah. that. People are surprised that, you know? Yeah. My first subway, I was about, I think I was 80, uh, 1985, I rode on my first public sur- uh, subway in New York City um, when I went to New York. Never been on one, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. But I yeah. rode a horse. <laughs> I rode a horse. Right. You know, I rode a horse. And, and one of the things, with with the African-American community, you know, traditionally we always talk about South Phoenix, but but Phoenix is is one of, you know, if you think about it, if you guys look at statistics, Arizona is, I think Arizona and Texas are the two main states where African-Americans are moving from California to Arizona, mm-hmm. right? Moving to Arizona. And so even though our numbers are not large, we're probably one of the highest percentage increases in Arizona okay. in terms of African-Americans coming to Arizona. And many of those African-Americans are, you know, um, professionals, working folks who moving from California for a lot of reasons, housing, economics, better lives, slow things down as they get older with their kids or or whatever. So, you know, we, we the community is all over the valley. I mean, the west side, the east side, you know, right. traditional South Phoenix, um, but the communities all over the valley. Um, Things that are in nature. We have uh, old communities in, you know, Sierra Vista, Casa Grande, out of Pinal County. So we we have these different communities. But I, I think the main thing, what I I, I would say, um, this to to you, is as you talk about these different communities, um, a lot of these communities right now, especially with the rhetoric in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, got a little more closer eye on on folks coming into their home now mm-hmm. because of of the elevated um, nonsense that, that that that's going on. And you know, when when you do outreach to different communities, like I said, different communities, um, Native communities, um, we have I think what twenty one recognized federal tribes in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And um, I just was up on the Navajo Nation not that long ago. They have a great program, Growing with Beauty, that, that you know, with early intervention. Um, so we have those different communities. We have a large, you know, rural community in Arizona. Um, right. So mining communities like Marinci. And so they have their own tight-knit culture and globe, mm-hmm. things of that nature. But, but when you go into those communities, you just have to kind of understand they do things a little bit different. You bring your template there, but you also have an underlay that there, there are local implications as we do our work um, in this area. Um, so those are the things I, I think that would be real helpful. Um, 
But as I mentioned to you earlier, we you know we have the virtual conference coming up in February the 14th and 15th. We're going to be in person at the Hyatt Regency. Um, Brent, I can share that information with you. You can share yeah. it with your and we'll post it for sure. Um, I think it's going to be um, really nice. Um, I've confirmed with a couple moms who are going to talk about um, raising a child with, with a lot of uh, health issues. With a lot That's of great. Issues, and they're going to talk about developing advocacy skills and what it took. And so they're, they're going to be talking from parent to parent. Okay. That's wonderful. Ronaldo, I was actually going to ask you about that piece of it. Um, what have you heard from your conferences about families and advocacy and how that might look in schools and how they can be part of how we can, how teachers and therapists can help include families of all well, cultures more. But... I, I think one of the things, there's, there's a couple of things. One of the things that was really nice, um, I received an email from one of the um, leaders of the Arizona uh, Division of Developmental Disabilities. And and, and they sent many staff members to the conference. And uh, I got a nice response back from him saying that the information that he received from his staff was very positive. But he said something that was important was that he hoped that they utilize what they learned in the conference in their practice of working with families. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that, that, um, that was real important. One of the things that we try to do, it's not as been successful, is we do invite schools and we reach out to schools. And um, we we don't get as much participation from school systems like I think we should. Mm. Um, I think sad because we do it an education track. Um, you know, we're an advocacy organization. Right. Do We do an education track. Um, um you know, but we don't get that response like we should. We get some schools, don't get me wrong, we get some schools to come. Um, in the past, um, several schools have, have come, but we would like to have more schools there, mm -hmm. especially schools that serve, serve uh, students of color. Um, I've been probably more disappointed in those schools than other schools. I think I get sometimes more schools from the suburbs come to the conference. Right. Um, so that's, that's, that's one of the, the downsides of it. But we're going to be here at the conference. We're going to continue to have those um, brave conversations at the conference. Um, they're meant to be brave. They're meant to try to make changes, try to improve, improve situations. But I think the most nice thing about it is we, uh, I hope we're offering a safe place for families, professionals to have that honest dialogue. Um, and meet our families. There's no gatekeepers. You're hearing directly from our parents. Yeah, you're going to hear straight from the parents. Uncensored. What's going well? Yeah. What's not going well? That's and it great. sounds like um, it sounds like there is a similar, um, not that's doing a conference, but a similar organization to what you are in every state. Is that right? There is actually a protection and advocacy agency in every state. Okay. okay. And what they do is depend on that state. We okay. have African American conference. That's one of our projects. We do everything right. they do. Okay, they do. They some do special ed, mental health, um, in, um, employment rights, housing, abuse and neglect, mental health. No matter where only, you are in the United States, there is this division in your There's state. a disability rights organization. Disability okay. rights New York, disability rights Arizona, Florida. Um, they are there. However, 
um, the law firm that I work for, this is one of our projects. We have many projects. This is one of the projects right. that I lead. So they may, may not do this because they may have other priorities um, right. in their state. And so you really have to reach out to Disability, Disability Rights Washington, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And find out what they do um, in their states, things of that nature. Because each state is different on how they meet the needs of their population. Right. right. That sounds like you're open to helping states kind of replicate um, in a way what you're doing um, or, jo or join, join in and, and learn it, from it. We've actually had other um, presenters from our other protection advocacy organizations participate in the conference. OK, so we, we do this. Um, we're inclusive. Uh, to answer your question, I have I speak to. Um, many different organizations every week, especially around now. When, I, when we do the virtual, next week we're going to do the virtual, it's open for the virtual conference. I guarantee you I would get more emails and more phone calls from different states, different organizations um, about the conference. When we do the um, in-person one, I would get tons and tons. And the answer is yes. Um, I work with different states. I, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, I was talking to um, folks out of Virginia and New York last Friday on getting their, they're getting an event, one day event going on in that state and things of that nature. And so, you know, we're here. The, it, it's all about meeting the needs of families. Um, this is not a propriety type of thing. Uh, my, my goal is to make sure all families, if they're African-American, Native American, low-income, um, that that their their families get the needs and services that they need that they're entitled to, and that we provide them a platform where they can come and learn. It's all about learning. We don't sell anything at our conference. It's all about learning, empowering yourself, giving you some extra tools in a toolbox. So yeah. go advocate um, for services for your child, family members, um, resources that you may need. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank everyone at your organization for the vision that you've had. Uh, thank you for, um, I love that your background is in special education. And I, I just, I want to thank you for um, sticking with it for the four decades to um, watch it turn into something because, you know, you can, you can get an idea and um, and, and, and try to do something and it, and it doesn't, you know, you don't have, um, you know, you don't have 15 countries involved right off the bat, right? You just kind of mm -hmm. have to keep plotting away when you know it's the right thing for families. Mm -hmm. I think that's what needs to be driving all conversations. And so I really appreciate the example that you've set here. So thank well, you thank so much for your work. Well, thank you, Sarah and uh, Brenda. I really appreciate the opportunity to um, speak with your group. And Brenda, I will share the information about the conference. So you can get that out to your group. We would love to guys have you guys come there and, you know, in the future, maybe we'll have something about occupational and speech therapy at the conference presentation. Yeah, okay? sounds good. Thanks sounds so good. much for joining us. We'll look forward okay. to the information. Thank you much. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye.